Our reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so humbled by your word in that we have it, that we hold it in our hands this morning. And so I pray that our hearts would be open to it, that we as a community would receive the truth of your word. Praying over Ryan that he would speak truth this morning. Um, pray that his words would be a light into this passage. And pray that your spirit would dwell mightily in this congregation this morning, and that we learn and that we grow in who you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Good morning. Uh, man, we made it to fall. The time changed. You woke up refreshed, ready, and eager to hear God's word. I could tell it by the way you were singing in the first service, all right? It was great. It's still confusing on what we're supposed to wear, right? Last week, I wore a sweater. You'll remember, I was drenched the whole time I was preaching. The second service was like a meat locker in here, and everyone was froze out, and I was thus informed I am never allowed to preach in a sweater again. So anyway... Um, we're figuring it out, guys. We're figuring it out. Well, we're continuing in our series through Romans this morning, and we, guys, we are getting into an avalanche of good news this morning. I, my prayer has been that this would just flood your heart this morning. As we get into that, I was thinking about this word more that is mentioned three different times in this passage about God, how, how he wants to give us more, much more in Christ, and even more than that, he says, in Romans 5. Uh, in the 1830s, uh, English author Charles Dickens wrote his second novel entitled Oliver Twist. Anybody ever read Oliver Twist, watched any of the movies? Okay, great, this is about half you, that'll be good. Um, so, um, no, I'm being serious, that's good. Uh, so there's this scene in Oliver Twist uh, Oliver is this orphaned uh, boy that is raised in this orphanage, and uh, there's tons and tons of boys in this orphanage, and there's this, there's this master that's just really just a gruesome master. Uh, and, um, and, and this room where the boys uh, were, were fed, uh, there's this one particular scene that really sticks out to me. There's this massive hall, it's, it's cold and it's made with stone, and there's this large copper pot at the end where the master stands and he dips out a, a, a scoop of gruel for each of the boys at each meal, and it is this meager little portion. 
This is all the boys receive. They get uh, also a half of a a roll uh, one day a week and then a couple of onions, and that's the extent of their food. And the, the impression that you get is there's this kind of slow starvation that's setting in among the boys And so each and every day, the boys would polish their bowls clean uh, as they ate that gruel, and they, you know, suffered from this, as they were suffering from this slow starvation for three months, uh, one of them finally says, hey, we're going to go ask for more. We've had it. There's this whole scenario I don't have time to get into. We're going to go ask for more, and it's decided that Oliver is going to be the one that goes and asks for more. And so Oliver timidly approaches the master with the request, and he's standing there before the master at this big copper cauldron of, of, that's full of gruel, and he says, please, sir, can I have some more? And it's like you can hear a pin drop when he asks, and the master goes, what? And he says, please, sir, Can I have some more? And the master is so frustrated that he takes the ladle and he flings it at Oliver. And then Oliver runs around the room and hides. And once he's caught, he is sentenced to solitary confinement. I think this scene is a portrait of how many of us approach God. We are starved for more of God, more of his love, more of his grace, more of his presence in our lives. And this is the cry of every human heart. We live in this, gray, this grace-starved world that, that fills itself and settles with this kind of cotton candy lifestyle, right? And this is the, we constantly settle for unfulfilling and cheap, empty substitutes. But the cry is the same of every human heart more. We approach our God as orphans do, a slave master oftentimes in that pursuit of more. We expect him to throw the ladle at us when we ask for more of his presence in our lives. But what if God never intended to slowly starve you of your desire for more of his presence and his grace in your life? What if Romans chapter 1 through 4 were all about setting up for you his desire to show you more? What if that was the case? What if he gave you all of that bad news, all of that truth about your spiritual diet in this world to show you what will actually sustain and fulfill your life? This is what Romans 5 shows us today, friends. And here's our big idea for the day. God gives us more grace than we could ever imagine in giving us Jesus. Amen? Let's dig into this together. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, if you got your Bible, flip it over to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read Romans 5, 9 through 11 just real quick here because there's where this idea, I just want you to see the repetition of how much more he wants to give you. Um, He says, much more, much more, and even more, because God's love has been poured into your hearts through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. Since therefore, verse 9, we have been justified by his blood. We talked about that in Romans 3 and 4. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, here's our word again, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But even more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So what is the substance of the much more of God? Is it just like, you know, like uh, moving up from a, from a large drink to a big gulp? I mean, what are we talking about here, right? What is the substance that we're actually gaining? And how can we be sure that it's actually going to sustain our longings and our desires? What has he done for us? What does that do for us? Well, I want to share four ways God has given you more grace than you could ever imagine this morning from Romans chapter 5. And as I set this up, I want to show you something amazing. Up until this point, the fact that we're justified, and what we said that word justified means is this, is that we're declared righteous before God by faith alone for all of time uh, because of Jesus apart from our own works. It's this amazing thing that through faith in what Christ has done on our behalf, we are declared righteous. It is once and for all done. You can't be unjustified once you're justified by Jesus. Okay, so that's what justification means. But it's kind of this sterile kind of courtroom kind of scenario, right? And, and unless you really love to be in a courtroom like some of my friends, it doesn't do much for you when you think about it, right? So what does God do in light of that? Well, it says that we're not just justified, but we're also reconciled to God. This passage is connecting that avalanche of grace in our hearts. It's connecting justification and it's connecting reconciliation, which is way more than we've ever been searching for. So what is reconciliation? In short, it's the process of becoming friends again after a situation has led you to become enemies. Have you ever been estranged from a friend before? Yeah, raise your hand. Yeah, some of you are maybe, I mean, in all seriousness, maybe some of you are estranged from friends right now. And maybe that's because of your own sin, maybe that's because of their sin, maybe it's because of both of your sin. But there's this certain pain that comes from it, right? Like you like see them in the grocery store and you're like, I'm going to go down this aisle instead, right? Um, and, and there's this, this pain, this tension that you feel. And I think some of us think that even though that we're justified by grace, we're still estranged from God. Like if he saw us, that he would like hunt us down and wouldn't like love us, right? Um, well, this passage is showing us that the two are connected. It's a, it's a relationship word. It's a feel word for us because we are feeling people. Here's what John Stott says about these the Romans 5. He says this, justification and reconciliation belong together. For God does not confer the status of righteousness upon us without at the same time giving himself to us in friendship and establishing peace between himself and us. Full stop. Did you hear that? God not only declares you righteous, does whatever it takes to, 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 to basically make you righteous for all of time by justifying you apart from your own works, but he also draws you in as friends. It's the best of both worlds. No longer do we have to walk around as if we're justified but not reconciled. Or as if we're reconciled, you know, Jesus is our homeboy, but we're not, there's no kind of legal declaration about us, right? The two belong together, Stott says. So it's like this, if, we're, if it were a math problem, justification plus reconciliation equals a restored friendship with God forever. How many of you are looking for that this morning? I know I am. I want to be friends with my Lord. 
I want to feel the nearness and closeness of his presence and know that it's going to last forever. This is what Romans 5 teaches us this morning. So, so what's happening in this cascade of grace that's reconciling us to God? Well, the first thing, Romans 5 one says this, and this is our, our first kind of a way that God's giving you more grace than you've ever asked for. We have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice what Romans 5.1 does not say. It does not say you have the peace of God. It says you have peace with God. The peace of God is the fruit of peace with God. The peace of God is what Philippians 4, 7 is talking about. It's this calming and quieted heart uh, that we experience in the presence of alarming and troubling circumstances that seek to rattle our confidence in God. He says, because you have peace with God, now you can have the peace of God. Uh, Many times we are looking for the peace of God without realizing that we have to have peace with God first. Right? And so this is what Romans 5.1 is solidifying in us, that peace with God precedes the peace of God uh, in our lives because this passage is saying uh, that we are at war with God before we are reconciled through faith in Jesus. You say, well, you know, what do you mean, pastor? How are we at war with God? Well, before we're saved by Jesus, we are enemies of God. And why are we enemies with God? Uh, Tim Keller sets this up in his, uh, in his commentary um, on Romans, and he says this. He says, peace with God means that until salvation, there is a war going on between us and God. When we disobey God, two things happen. The first is that when you sin, you not only break his law, we're aware of that, but you also assume the right or authority to do so. I can do this is what we say when we sin. You claim kingship over yourself and the world. But God is claiming kingship over the very same things. Do you see the problem here? God is saying, this is mine. You're saying, no, this is mine, and I'm going to have my way. And there, a war ensues. Whenever two parties claim absolute kingly control over something, there is war. It's basic principle of warfare, right? So picture this in your mind. There is a standoff between us and God every time we disobey. We are planting our flag of independence from God, and God is saying, no, you're mine. This is my way. This is my world. I created it. And the tension ensues. The tension is what it feels like to be lost in this world and to struggle against God in our sin. Sometimes we're really aware of that tension, that war that's happening within us and around us. Other times we're not as much. We're numb to the war. So what does God do in the war? How does he respond to the war that we've created against him? Well, he ultimately wins, but he, he takes back what's been stolen from him, and here's how he does it. Here's what Romans 5, 6 through 10 says. While we were still weak, in other words, the ones that were going to get crushed by God in this war, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we're still in the act of sinning, is what Romans is saying, Christ died for us. 
It wasn't like we pulled our act together for a moment. It's like, okay, I'll die for them now. Okay, they're doing good. They're obeying. Okay. No, while we were in the act, God sent his son to die for us. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In other words, the heavy lifting's already been done. The blood's already flowing. Can we trust the blood to carry us to completion is the question. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul says that while we were still enemies, while we were still warring against God with no chance of winning, God surrendered his son to make peace with us. You know how like somebody uh, in a war, they would you know, throw up the white flag if they didn't want to get clobbered anymore, right? Well, God is the one that is clearly going to win the war, and he's the one that throws up the white flag by sending his son out. Think about how ridiculous that is. This is how much God has come to us in Christ. God surrendered it all while we stomped on his reign. And because of how and when God surrendered his son, we can be confident in the benefits of his promise. Because we were warring against him when he reconciled himself and called us friends. Remember Jesus' prayer on the cross, the last thing he prayed? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is praying, they don't see the war that they're in with you, Father. Father, forgive them as he's being murdered by his brothers, his co-image bearers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At war with God, and God surrenders his son to make peace with you. That's amazing grace, friends. How is it that you war against God at this point in your life? Where is it that you've planted your flag of authority on his land? And what does it do inside of your heart, friends, this morning, to know that not even that can stop God from coming from you? That not even your own rebellion against him, you know, your own trespassing on his territory can keep him from coming and calling you friend. We have peace with God. Second thing Romans says is this. We have access to grace. And what he means by access is it's this new kind of environment for us to live in, right? It's not like we got access to, like, forgiveness for this one thing that we did at that one time. But we have access to this new way of living is what Romans 5.2 says. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith, like clearance, right? Into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because we stand in that grace because we have access through faith. So we've been at war with the king. Let's play out the metaphor here. And now the Bible says we're friends with the king that we've been at war with. How wild is that? And how are we friends? Because the king surrendered his own son to reconcile the hostility that existed. Like, we're like now really close and personal friends of the king. And this happens only because of Jesus. Through his life, through his sacrifice, through his uh, resurrection for us that has brought us near to the king. Jesus swapped places with us on the cross. We deserve to be the ones that were captured in the war and then put on the cross. But God sent his son across enemy lines for us 
and put his son on the cross. Jesus became God's enemy on the cross so that we can be brought near as family forever, friends. And you can only be close friends with the king if someone from the king's inner circle brings you in. And in our case, pays for the debt against the king themselves. You were an enemy of the king because of our treason against him. But now Jesus has brought us near and he's given us full access to the king. And now the fight for us as believers is this. It's actually believing that we belong close to the king. You have this security uh, clearance level, right, to the king forever because of Jesus. God's son always stands to intercede for us, and the Holy Spirit is constantly whispering in our ears as he's an advocate, right? It's okay, friend, you belong here. You belong in this place of grace, this standing of grace. It'll never go away because you'll never be unjustified and unreconciled from your Father in heaven because Jesus lives. That's what it means to have access to his presence and grace, friends. You don't have to stand before the king on your own record. We stand on grace. And because of this standing, Paul says we rejoice. In other words, we recall joy over and over and over again because we stand on grace, not our own works. Because the glory of God rests on our lives and it even waits for us in eternity, right? Like we, we, we have it now, but we're getting it more. So when we think about our own record this morning, friends, what do we do? We lack confidence and we deny the need for grace. That, those are the two things that happen whenever we try to stand on our own record. We try to minimize the offense and we try to maximize what we can prove about ourselves. This is the deception of a workspace righteousness. But what does knowing that you were made to stand on grace instead of your works do in your heart today? What would it look like for you to take that thing that, that really tries to deceive your heart into thinking that you can't have access to God, that you can't be near to him? What would it look like to take that thing, surrender it to the Lord, and realize that your standing never changed? That's the kind of rock-solid confidence that the Lord desires to give to your heart today. Third thing we see is this, is that we have joy, through, uh, joy in suffering through this shameless hope that we have. Romans 5, 3 through 5 um, talks about this. So we not only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, like this, this great thing that is in front of us, this, this value, this, this weightiness, this worth that, that we are going to discover about God as we follow him and definitely in eternity when we see him face to face, but also that we feel in our lives because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the good thing that we look forward to. But Paul says this crazy thing. He says that actually the things that you're trying to avoid are actually producing the same thing. Here's what he says in Romans 5, 3 through 5. He says, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, so Paul's saying this counterintuitive thing about this new standing that we have in grace and not on works. 
He says it's that nothing in the world can change your standing in grace. Nothing that happens in you, nothing that happens around you, nothing that happens to you can ever change this. And this is why Joseph was able to say, even before Jesus ever came on the scene, in Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good, right? This is why Joseph can believe that because he's looking forward to the promise of what Christ will give to us. This is why Paul will say later in Romans 8, the, arguably the best chapter in the entire Bible, right? Romans chapter 8, for those who love God, all things, every single thing, work for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things are working for good, Paul says. So even in our suffering, even in the troubles that we have in this world, they, are, they must, they are required to work for your good. They cannot be working against us because of the end of our story is already written. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Therefore, all of the suffering that we have today, all the trials, all the tribulations, all of the things that seem to threaten this hope of the glory of God are actually maturing us and leading us to greater, greater degrees of glory is what 2 Corinthians will say. It's this amazing truth that's, Kind of easy to look at and believe, really hard to live, right? Um, so this is, this is not some type of understanding that you have to work up uh, yourself for. These are the two truths right here. Glory is the end of your story, Christian, period. That is where you are going. And Paul says you can be confident of it because the heavy lifting's already been done. The blood's already been shed. Trust Jesus to finish the story. The second thing is this, is that even though it doesn't seem like glory now, your, your, uh, your circumstances are maturing and preparing you to receive even more profound glory this side of judgment and on the other side of judgment. It's this amazing truth that we must cling to. As believers in Jesus who stand on grace, nothing can keep you from what God has prepared for you and what he's doing in you now. God's love is too strong for our circumstances, whether they be self-inflicted like many of us have or fallen condition prescriptive to change the ultimate trajectory of your life. Nothing can change it. Therefore, our response to suffering is the best place to be assured of God's love for us. That's what Paul's saying here, is that when you suffer, somehow you still have this hope. Paul's saying it in another way, even though you've been, you know, you know, uh, experienced all these things, you know, you still have this hope like it's in jars of clay, right? It says this in 2 Corinthians. Um, you know, we've been, we've been beat up and not destroyed. He goes through this whole list of things. And so the question is, does joy describe the life of suffering in believers? Because Paul says it should if we're understanding what Jesus has done. That the counterintuitive joy of the Lord is present and even most present during times of suffering because of what Jesus has done. He says joy is, is the great litmus test of a justified person. Is, is joy present in you? You know, this uh, non-circumstantial happiness and gladness. Do they, do they have joy? Can, because genuine joy can only really be discovered and revealed circumstantially, Right? Like, you can, you can read about it in a book, you can read about it in the Bible, but what he's talking about is most evident in relationship. That's where joy is discovered. And, it's, and it shines like a, like a bright diamond on a black cloth um, uh, when we experience suffering. It shines brightest in those moments. 
So here's the, here's the scenario that he draws up. He says, okay, imagine something bad happens, right? Some kind of trial, some type of suffering, some type of tribulation in your life happens. Imagine that. It won't take you very long to imagine that because you've got something on your mind right now. <laughs> and it threatens your joy, doesn't it? Whatever it is. He says, how does, the, how does being a believer change our response to that? Like, how does the fact that we are justified and reconciled change how we respond to suffering? And so Paul walks us through this situation. He says, okay, suffering is actually leading you to endurance. So, so what happens in a moment of suffering? Like, think about it. Our hearts get very focused on whatever it is, don't they? Everything else starts to fade away. Our priorities are heightened around this particular issue. We're able to drop everything because this is so painful right now in front of us. The word to endure in this uh, means to persevere. It means to hold on and to stay steady. So the image is, is like an anchored soul in the midst of a raging storm. Like if you've ever seen a boat that's maybe on a mooring ball or something like that and the, the waves are just crashing around, the boat just kind of stays steady. That's the image of what happens because we are justified and reconciled in the midst of suffering. That somehow, we don't know how, we are anchored to Jesus through faith, even in the midst of the raging storm. And so what happens is the circumstances are actually working for our good. They're growing our confidence, is what he's saying here. He says endurance, so, so suffering is leading to endurance. Endurance is then producing character. Character is the quality of sustained behavior over time. So endurance leading to character, character means that hope-filled Believers are becoming more and more confident of their standing the more that they suffer because they realize that God is with them and they're going to be okay. And what does this consistent character lead to that, that's being produced through suffering and endurance? He says character is producing hope. And uh, as I was talking with Bruce, this isn't like Vegas hope, all right? This isn't like Powerball hope. This is, a, this is tested hope. This is certain hope that God gives us, right? Our sustained experience of an, having an anchored soul by faith in the midst of a raging storm grows our hope that we will really be okay, that God will really deliver us, and that what we see is not all that there is. And this, this, friends, is an invitation to a lost world who's swept away at sea, to see a Christian anchored in the middle of suffering. Now, I've always noticed this, if you go through a really difficult time um, and you're grasping for some kind of relief, who is it that you look to? Do you look to um, untested and less mature Christian friends who haven't been through what you're going through? No. Now, who do you look for? We look toward those who have been through the fire, who have weathered the storm, and have not been broken. And why do we do this? Because those friends not only believe Romans 5, 3 through 5 in their head, but they have experienced it and are now walking testimonies of this truth. Amen? The Lord wants to make you that in this world. It's almost like you are a walking example of Romans 5 everywhere you go because of the hope that you have in the face of suffering. Hope in the midst of trouble does not put us to shame. Why? Because it proves over and over and over again that God's promise is real through what it produces in you. God's love has, is, and forever will be filling our hearts because the Holy Spirit will always be with us. And he can't help but pour his love into us through faith. 
That is what God is actively doing in your heart, is pouring his love into your heart through faith. Picture that. That's what it means to not only be justified, but to be reconciled. The nearness and closeness of God is real. Where is it that the enemy has deceived your heart from standing on this kind of grace in the face of suffering today? Where is it that you are just tempted to go worst case scenario and think like the most lost person on the face of the planet? Something bad happens, you're like, oh, I knew it was all going to fall apart anyway. Here's the thing I want to challenge you with. We didn't do anything to gain access to this grace that we stand. We didn't do anything to, to, the only thing we did was believe and God gave us the gift of faith, right? The suffering of this world cannot take your standing away. It cannot help but lead to a deeper foundation on that grace. That's the invitation for us. So while we're not looking for suffering, we're certainly not afraid of it because it is working for our good. That's the confidence that we need to hear. That's the confidence we need to believe, especially when we're not suffering, so that when we do, we can recall it to mind and experience it in real time. The last thing I want to say is this, is that uh, not, only, not only do we have this, um, this peace with God, not only do we have this access to grace, not only do we have joy in suffering through this shameless hope that we have, but we also have confidence of forgiveness. Here's what Romans 5, 9 through 10 says. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It's future oriented, right? For if while we were still sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we're in close proximity and friendship and fellowship with him, much, um, much more now that we've been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So here's the thing. Here's the thing the Bible's acknowledging here. God has said that we are fully and finally saved by faith, and therefore we can have confidence on judgment day because of what Jesus has done for us, but we live with this reality inside of us that it feels like we're kind of half saved, if we're honest, right? It, it feels like, yeah, I kind of know that, but I'm still, judgment day, I'm gonna be a little squirrely, you know what I mean, right? That, that's how we live. We live kind of like, half-saved people. We walk without this confidence, and we shrink back in fear uh, whenever we see our own sin or we see others that seem maybe out of the reach of God. We, we, we are, we're filled with fear, and it's ultimately a fear of our own standing before God. That's what causes us to shrink back. That's why when the believers in Acts chapter 4, uh, when Peter and John were um, you know, uh, arrested and then they were released, beaten and released, they, when they asked for prayer, what do they ask for prayer for? Not to get us out of Jerusalem, but for boldness, for confidence in the truth that they were preaching, right? So Paul says, here's your confidence. Here's how you can know. The heavy lifting of your salvation has already been accomplished in Jesus. The cross was the thing that, you know, if the cross was still hanging out there, that you'd actually be justified and reconciled. You know, maybe you could have a little uncertainty. But because the cross has already happened and the resurrection has already occurred, friends, it's in the bag from here. He's going to finish the good work that he started in us. And we can have confidence that his blood is going to cover us on the day of judgment. Our hope lies in the fact that in Jesus there is this marriage of justification, this declaration that we're righteous, and reconciliation, this nearness and friendship that we now have with God, which leads us to this. It leads us to stay out of the courtroom and at home with the Father. 
Those are the two things, the kind of two behaviors that, that my, my, you know, my prayers been, would flow from your life uh, from, from reading this in Romans. So it's like this. It's like the judge has already announced the verdict. You've already been justified, right? And the father's already said, you're, you know, you're righteous, and he's welcomed you home. So the work then for believers is this, is staying at home with the father instead of running from his love and shame and fear, and staying out of the courtroom of condemnation. If we can therefore learn to live in those two realities, we will then be able to clearly have the confidence we need as we think about the day when Jesus returns. Justification means we stay out of the courtroom of condemnation. Reconciliation means we stay at home with the king, with the father. So where do you struggle to have confidence in your standing before the father and your relationship with the father today? What would it look like for you today to, to stay out of the courtroom of condemnation, to, to stop judging someone, that is, something about yourself that God has already forgiven, right? What would it look like to, to live in the Father's embrace of a reconciled relationship instead of acting like he's going to throw a ladle at you, right? Because you're asking for more. He knows all of this about us. Our Father in heaven has poured an avalanche of grace on, on our lives, friends. Jesus not only made you right uh, with God for Judgment Day, but is giving us this foundation that depends on grace and not works today. He's brought us near to our Father and reconciled our relationship to him through his blood. And our Father calls us friend. And we realize that grace is not only a foundation for our security in this world, but it's also a currency in the relationships that we enter into in this world, right? Because of the standing that we have in grace, it's now a currency that we operate from as we think about our relationships uh, with others. You know, this week I got this amazing text from my dad, um, and he said, uh, you know, dad's a, dad's a new follower of Jesus, and he says, you know, God is so good. Thank you for not giving up on me. And, um, <clears throat> and I, just, I just, I thought to myself, I wish I could, you know, take credit for being a son like that, but the reality is, I can't. There were times that I have and, and maybe even will give up on people, maybe even give up on my father. But the, the reality is, is that the foundation of grace that I stand upon and that you stand upon and the currency that we are offered to give to one another outweighs even our worst moments of unbelief. And that is good news for us, friends. This is the beauty of the gospel alive in the church. And so my challenge to you is this, is, is to seek his face this week as he reinforces your confidence and your standing before him in grace. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.